It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So think of your most efficient day. Maybe a day when everything just fell into place. You took a run, you answered emails, meditated, wrote a chapter of your book, whatever it was. It was a successful day, right? Not exactly, especially compared to this dude's. I run, jump, walk, season of the audience 26 and a half miles on average on that day alone. So I do ultra marathons in a weekend physically. Everybody has days where they come to the end of the day. I come to the end of the day bone tired and victorious. If at this point you are wondering, was that just Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker? You would be correct, because we cannot actually do our show today without him. It is a show all about success, what we think it means, and why that's wrong, and why that word causes so much anxiety. Can we just like get a small elephant out, out of the room for a sec? Sure. Because some people are going to be listening to us now, and they're going to be thinking like, Tony Robbins, he's like the self-help guy. I mean, come on. That's not for me. <laughs> I guess uh, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but, you know, it's been pretty good for four presidents and uh, royalty in many different countries <laughs> and some of the top athletes in the world and Academy Award members. I mean, these people think that don't have a clue what I really do. So what is it exactly that he does do? Good evening. How you all doing out there? Okay, you know what I'm talking about because you've had insomnia and you've been pulled into a Tony Robbins infomercial at some point in your life. Let's give everybody a hand for attending and coming here. I appreciate it. The stadium crowds, the high-fiving, the firewalking, the cheers, the smiles, the slides, the numbers. The numbers. So the first step, I'll just tell you that, is C is capture. I look at life and say there's two master lessons. One is there's three things, three parts. Three decisions. There's four kinds of love. Level one love is baby love. And the last step, number five, five C's, six needs, seven forces. Seven things in that seminar. 2,000 people from 45 countries. We were translating four languages for a week. Tony Robbins knows there is a lot of confusion about what he does, which is what he wanted to get out of the way when he began his TED Talk. People say to me, well, I don't need any motivation. And I say, well, that's interesting. That's not what I do. I'm the why guy. I don't know why you do what you do. What is your motive for action? What is it that drives you in your life today, not 10 years ago, or are you running the same pattern? Because I believe that the invisible force of internal drive Activated is the most important thing in the world. I'm here because I believe emotion is the force of life. All of us here have great minds. You know, most of us here have great minds, right? But when emotion comes into it, the wiring changes in the way it functions. And so it's wonderful for us to think intellectually about how the life of the world is, and especially those who are very smart. We can play this game in our head, but really what we got to remind ourselves is decision is the ultimate power. That's what it really is. Now, when you ask people, you know, have you failed to achieve something? How many have ever failed to achieve something significant in your life? Say, I. <laughs> Thanks for the interaction on a high level there. <laughs> but if you, if you ask people, why didn't you achieve something? Somebody who's working for you, you know, or a partner, or even yourself, and you failed to achieve a goal, what's the reason people say they failed to achieve? What do they tell you? Don't have the, didn't know enough, didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the money, didn't have the time, didn't have the technology, you know, I didn't have the right manager, <laughs> didn't have the Supreme Court. <laughs> all right, all right let's, let's, let's pause here for a moment, uh, Tony, because 
that guy who shouts out the Supreme Court in the audience, that was Al Gore. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> it was quite a surprise. I looked down and saw him. And I think uh, he and the audience weren't quite ready for my response, right? Because my point here is that all these things you say you don't have, the reason you failed, are resources. A lack of time is a resource. A lack of money is a resource. A lack of technology or key people is a resource, you know? But the real problem is resources. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't don't give it away because we are about to hear your response to Al Gore. Oh, you're going to share it? Go for it. (laughs) What do all those, including the Supreme Court, have in common? They are a claim to you missing resources. And they may be accurate. You may not have the money. You may not have the Supreme Court. But that is not the defining factor. (laughs) And you correct me if I'm wrong. The defining factor is never resources, it's resourcefulness. And what I mean specifically, rather than just some phrase, is if you have emotion, human emotion, something that I experienced from you day before yesterday at a level that is as profound as I've ever experienced, and if you'd communicated with that emotion, I believe you would have beat his ass and won. Wow. You saying that right to Al Gore. Well, it's true. In fact, <laughs> the guys from Kleiner Perkins all took me out that night afterwards and said, oh, my God, you know, we wanted to say this to him. Well, yeah, they couldn't believe you said that. That was so amazing. Well, you coach him, so he runs for president. I said, he doesn't want to run for president. So, you know, I'm not coming from the place of gloating or something of that nature, but the truth is, if you saw Al Gore during those debates with Bush, you know, it was pretty hard to vote for him, right? And if you'd seen him the night before when he'd done his presentation, you know, an inconvenient truth, you'd say, oh my God, this, if this guy was in that debate, you would have voted him from a heartbeat. He didn't have the passion, he didn't have the connection, he didn't have the emotion. And emotion then creates what we're gonna do, or the action. So think about your own life, the decisions that have shaped your destiny. And that sounds really heavy, but in the last five or 10 years, 15 years, haven't there been some decisions you've made that if you made a different decision, your life would be completely different? How many can think of one, honestly? Better or worse, say I. So the bottom line is maybe it was worth We forget that in this moment, if you don't like your job, frickin' change it. You don't like your relationship, change it. You don't like what your business is, change it. You don't like how you feel, change it. We forget the power of decision. We forget we can draw a line in the sand and say no effing more about anything we've experienced in the past. Your, your own story of not allowing past events to define you, right? Or at least to take those events and to find a different kind of meaning. Um, yes. How did that change your own life and then how you kind of lived it? I think everybody's got a story, right? So either your story empowers you or disempowers you. If it disempowers you, destroy it because it's something you created. So, you know, my story could have been I was, came from an abusive family and my mother beat me and smashed my head against the wall until I was bleeding and poured liquid soap down my throat till I vomited, which, you know, I never shared with anyone until very recently when I was working with a group of these battered children. And I was just, I thought, you know, they think I'm the smiling, happy, motivational guy. So I told them the full story and I got out publicly. But I never shared it before because I didn't want that to be a story. That's not the story that finds me. But I wanted them to understand that your past does not equal your future that out of the worst, most severe injustice, some good or ideally greatness can come. We can't control events, we can't control people, but we can control what life means to us. And the most successful people on earth are the people who have learned to take control of that. And so to me, you know, divorce your story and marry the truth. When you find that story, it's gonna be the one that moves you forward. 
So we hear a lot of like this idea of finding your passion and following it. And later in the show, we're going to hear from, from Mike Rowe, who says this is all nonsense. Don't follow your passion. Um, actually, do what, do what you can do to make money. Is, is that the right idea for everybody? Well, I'm not here to correct him. I, I might have a slightly different point of view. You do have to find out if your passion can reward you economically. If it doesn't, then it's a hobby. It's, it's wonderful. We all need things that fulfill us. If you can find something where you can do something 50 to you know a real 80 or 90 hours a week, which is what people do when they're truly passionate, and you can be paid for it as well, well, gosh, that's extraordinary. You know, when I first, you know, went to work in business, I went to work at this company and the guy that was a 10 times better speaker than I was, and he could go out and take an audience and, you know, 98% of the people respond and I might get 5%. But I just decided, you know, he's doing four talks a month on average. I'm going to do three talks a day. When I gone through a month, I'll be blown past what he would have done in a year. And that's exactly what I did. And in six months, I dwarfed him in my capacity, my ability. It wasn't this gift. Ultimately, it's what are you willing to do? How hungry are you? How driven are you? I say don't settle. If you settle, you're going to have a life that you're going to be apologetic to yourself about if you don't say it to anybody else. Find your passion. Rip through it. How do you find your passion? You stop settling. How do you find it? You get yourself in a different state. You got to work out. You got to do something every day that gets you strong enough that your mind functions differently than the average person. You're intense, man. <laughs> I'm passionate. Woo. There are 6,000 emotions that we all have words for in the English language, which is a linguistic representation, right? It changes by language. But if your dominant emotions, if I, you know, I have more time, I have 20,000 people or 1,000, and I have them write down all the emotions that they experience in an average week, and I give them as long as they need, and on one side they write empowering emotions, the other is disempowering. Guess how many emotions people experience? Less than 12. And half of those make them feel like shit. So they got five or six good frickin' feelings. Right? It's like they feel happy, happy, excited, oh shit, frustrated, frustrated, overwhelmed, depressed. How many of you know somebody who no matter what happens finds a way to get pissed off? How many know somebody like this? <laughs> or no matter what happens, no matter what happens, they find a way to be happy or excited. How many know somebody like this? Come on. Your model of the world is what shapes you long term. Your model of the world is the filter. That's what's shaping us. That's what makes people make decisions. We want to influence somebody, we gotta know what already influences them. So my invitation to you is this. Explore your web, the web in here, the needs, the beliefs, the emotions that are controlling you for two reasons. So there's more of you to give, yeah, achieve too. We all want to do it, but I mean give, because that's what's going to fill you up. And secondly, so you can appreciate, not just understand, that's intellectual, that's mind, but appreciate what's driving other people. It's the only way our world's going to change. God bless you. Thank you. I hope this will serve. Kenny Robin. What do you think is more important to success? Understanding what drives other people or understanding what drives you? Well, I wouldn't pick. That's, you know, what, what, what you'd rather have, a punch in the face or a kick in the stomach, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's silly. Uh, you need to do both. And frankly, every time you say the word success, it kind of, uh, it, it's annoying in my nervous system because it's really not what I believe that life is about. And when you use the word success, it seems so shallow to me. That's never been it. It's never been on my values list. I, I'd much rather say, what creates a meaningful life? What makes people light up? What makes people feel alive? What's going to make somebody wake up in the morning excited? Not because they've been motivated. I, I don't even do that. I might, might inspire somebody from the moment, but what I'm looking for is your drive. What are your drives? Your drives aren't going to go away. Motivation's like a warm bath. You should take a bath. You're going to stink if you don't. You know, if you don't get around inspiration, you know, something that puts you in your spirit, something to trigger you, you might trudge along sometime. 
But my real belief is you got to tap into your drives. You got to find that hunger. That's what this is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Robbins. You should really watch his full talk at TED.com because it is truly awesome. Our show today, a word success. What it means, why we all secretly and not so secretly want it, and why we might be all wrong about it. I'm Guy Raz. Stay with us for more TED Radio Hour in a moment from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and our show today, it's all about success, which by any standard measure would define Angela Duckworth. Harvard and Oxford educated, former high-powered consultant, tenured professor at Penn, and she just won a MacArthur Genius Grant. So yeah, success. When I say success, like, you know, you're a successful person, does that, um, does that make you uncomfortable? Because I actually cringe. In fact, I'm cringing right now, knowing that we are calling this show success. <laughs> it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I know what you mean, though, about the term carrying baggage. Sometimes people, I think, feel uncomfortable because they feel like when people talk about objective measures of success, it's an incomplete picture. And it is because there is this other side. So Angela Duckworth studies those objective indicators of success to figure out why some people are more successful than others, especially when it comes to students. And her curiosity about all this began in the classroom. She was teaching seventh graders at a rough school in New York. Angela picks up the story in her TED Talk. I made quizzes and tests. I gave out homework assignments. When the work came back, I calculated grades. What struck me was that IQ was not the only difference between my best and my worst students. Some of my strongest performers did not have stratospheric IQ scores. Some of my smartest kids weren't doing so well. And that got me thinking. The kinds of things you need to learn in seventh grade math, sure, they're hard. Ratios, decimals, the area of a parallelogram. But these concepts are not impossible. And I was firmly convinced that every one of my students could learn the material if they worked hard and long enough. After several more years of teaching, I came to the conclusion that what we need in education is a much better understanding of students and learning from a motivational perspective, from a psychological perspective. In education, the one thing we know how to measure best is IQ. But what if doing well in school and in life depends on much more than your ability to learn quickly 
and easily. I started studying kids and adults in all kinds of super challenging settings. And in every study, my question was, who is successful here and why? My research team and I went to West Point Military Academy. We tried to predict which cadets would stay in military training and which would drop out. We studied rookie teachers working in really tough neighborhoods, asking which teachers are still gonna be here in teaching by the end of the school year? And of those, who will be the most effective at improving learning outcomes for their students? We partnered with private companies asking, which of these salespeople is gonna keep their jobs? And who's gonna earn the most money? In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. What is grit? How do you explain what it is? Grit is the disposition to pursue very long-term goals with passion and perseverance. And I want to emphasize the stamina quality of grit. Grit is sticking with things over the long term and then working very hard at it. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. A few years ago, I started studying grit in the Chicago public schools. I asked thousands of high school juniors to take grit questionnaires and then waited around more than a year to see who would graduate. Can you tell me um, like some of the questions on the grit questionnaire? Yeah, um, so half of the questions on the grit questionnaire are about perseverance, right? I am a hard worker. I finish whatever I begin. The scale's five points. It goes from very much like me to not at all like me. Setbacks don't discourage me. Very much like I me. don't give up after disappointment. Like and me. I am diligent. Very much like the me. more you say, oh, that's very much like me, then the higher your grit score. Turns out that grittier kids were significantly more likely to graduate even when I matched them on every characteristic I could measure. Things like family income, standardized achievement test scores, even how safe kids felt when they were at school. There has to be a correlation between natural ability and, and grit, isn't there? Well, you know, when I first started this work, I had the intuition, as many of us might, that there would be a correlation and that it would be positive. Uh, just let's take um, math ability, right? And you could say, well, some kids are going to be better at math than others. Well, shouldn't the kids who are really good at math be the ones who are really hardworking and persistent at it? Because, you know, when they sit down to do their homework, they get so much out of it. So shouldn't they be the ones that are persistent? Shouldn't they go hand in hand in a positive way? And actually, the correlation tends to either be negative or zero, depending on the data sample that I've collected. And I've wondered about that. And I think it's because we adapt to our circumstances. And if you've never had to try very hard, you've never had to get up after setbacks and failures, then maybe you don't cultivate that capacity. Uh, all right, so how do we make sure our four-year-olds get into, uh, you know, Princeton? <laughs> Didn't you listen to what I just said? No, uh, it's, it's actually a question. I mean, I'm not kidding. I think I've almost exactly heard that question before. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, how do I build grit in kids? What do I do to teach kids a solid work ethic? How do I keep them motivated for the long run? The honest answer is, I don't know. 
So far, the best idea I've heard about building grit in kids is something called growth mindset. This is an idea developed at Stanford University by Carol Dweck, and it is the belief that the ability to learn is not fixed, that it can change with your effort. Dr. Dweck has shown that when kids read and learn about the brain and how it changes and grows in response to challenge, they're much more likely to persevere when they fail because they don't believe that failure is a permanent condition. So that actually might inspire a child to show more perseverance? Yeah. Um, in separate research, Carol and I have found together, because we collaborate, that grittier students tend to have more of this growth mindset. So you're seeing a picture come together here that, indeed, believing that change is possible incline kids to be grittier, and then that grit helps them actually accomplish things like, you know, doing well in school, graduating from high school, and so forth. Do you think that ultimately the way we define success, right, kind of sets up false expectations? Yeah, I think that, you know, we should be very careful to examine our definitions of things like success. I don't think that every child in America is going to necessarily aspire to, you know, a four-year degree from a liberal arts college or a certain kind of life. I think that people should learn to be excellent in the thing that they choose to do. I think the questions on the grit scale about not letting setbacks disappoint you, finishing what you begin, doing things with focus. I think that those are things I would aspire to or hope for, for all our children. I think that achieving a personal standard of excellence, pushing yourself farther than you thought you could, you know, getting up after disappointment, these are things that are true for all of us. Angela Duckworth. Her research into grit and success just won her a MacArthur Genius Grant. You can watch her full talk and take the grit questionnaire for yourself at ted.npr.org. Okay, so I'm thinking grit. Great, but, but that's going to take some time, right? So how, how about a shortcut to success, like something you can do now? Well, there happens to be one, and there is actually research to back this all up. Here's Ron Goodman's foolproof method from his TED Talk. I started my journey in California with a UC Berkeley 30-year longitudinal study that examined the photos of students in an old yearbook and tried to measure their success and well-being throughout their life. By measuring the students' smiles, researchers were able to predict how fulfilling and long-lasting a subject marriage will be, how well she would score in standardized tests of well-being, and how inspiring she would be to others. Another aha moment came from a 2010 Wayne State University uh, research project that looked into pre-1950s baseball cards of major league players. The researchers found that the span of a player's smile could actually predict the span of his life. Players who didn't smile in their pictures lived an average of only 72.9 years, where players with beaming smiles lived an average of almost 80 years. <laughs> a recent study at Uppsala University in Sweden found that it's very difficult to frown when looking at someone who smiles. You ask why? 
Because smiling is evolutionary contagious and it suppresses the control we usually have on our facial muscles. Mimicking a smile and experiencing it physically help us understand whether a smile is fake or real so we can understand the emotional state of the smiler. In addition to theorizing on evolution in the origin of species, Charles Darwin also wrote the facial feedback response theory. His theory states that the act of smiling itself actually makes us feel better rather than smiling being merely a result of feeling good. Uh, in his study, Darwin actually cited the French neurologist Julien Duchamp, who used electric jolts to facial muscles to induce and stimulate smiles. Please don't try this at home. <laughs> Smiling stimulates our brain reward mechanism in a way that even chocolate, a well-regarded pleasure inducer, cannot match. British researchers found that one smile can generate the same level of brain stimulation as up to 2,000 bars of chocolate. <laughs> Wait. The same study found that smiling is as stimulating as receiving up to 16,000 pounds sterling in cash. That's like 25 grand a smile. It's not bad. <laughs> and if that's not enough, smiling can actually make you look good in the eyes of others. A recent study at Penn State University found that when you smile, you don't only appear to be more likable and courteous, but you actually appear to be more competent. So whenever you want to look great and competent, reduce your stress, or improve your marriage, or feel as if you just had a whole stack of high-quality chocolate without incurring the caloric cost, or as if you found 25 grand in a pocket of an old jacket you hadn't worn for ages, or whenever you want to tap into a superpower that will help you and everyone around you live a longer, healthier, happier life, smile. Ron Goodman. He wrote a book about all this. It's called Smile, The Astonishing Powers of a Civil Act. And this full talk can be found at TED.com. I've tried this, by the way, and I'm not kidding. It totally works, even when people think you look like a freak. What you do for a lot of people is a main measure of success. And this guy, he wants to redefine that measure. My name is Mike Rowe, and this is my job. And this is Mike Rowe's TV show from the Discovery Channel. It's called Dirty Jobs. I explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get You're dirty. You get a little taste of what it's like to be a septic tank technician. Doing the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. Now get ready to get dirty. This year, the show finished its eighth and final season. And it was pretty simple. No actors, no writers, no rehearsals, no scouting, no pre-production, no second take. Just Mike and a camera crew tagging along with sewer workers. What is going to happen to me today? Today you're going to get covered in sludge. Sludge, and what exactly? He hung out with garbage sorters. As dumps go, some places smell worse than others, I suppose. And this place right here smells pretty daggone bad. Ken, would you agree? I do. There were chimney sweepers, roadkill collectors. And we worked our way across the country. By the time the dust settled, we had done 300 jobs and worked in all 50 states. 
Now, before Mike launched the show more than a decade ago, he was doing bit parts on TV. He was even a pitch man for the QVC Shopping Network. I heard before that you were even a successful opera singer for like like eight years? No. No. No, don't. Uh, opera is one of those disciplines where it's easy to confuse longevity with success. Uh, <laughs> I learned the shortest aria I could find and got into the Baltimore Opera in 1984 Wow! with the plan of paying my dues and getting my SAG card. But as it turns out, the music was better than I thought, and I had a pretty good time and stuck around for eight years. Wow. Can you, like, blow my ears away right now? Il resto al pianto scendere sacri monti o devi le mie grazie Grazie, grazie. That's beautiful. Come on. I realized that while I felt pretty successful uh, working in the cracks of the industry, I wasn't really doing anything that felt uh, meaningful or personal. So in 2001, he came up with the idea for dirty jobs. Because my grandfather, who was 92 at the time and a tradesman, had never seen me do anything on TV that looked like work. My granddad, by the way, was one of those guys who um, he could reassemble an engine without looking at directions. He could take a watch apart and put it together. You know, I wanted to find people who had that gene because, sadly, it skipped over me. And... We showed these people as they really are, which again and again turned out to be self-deprecating, funny. And so that's a long way of saying that success, the way it's portrayed in pop culture anyway, usually falls into these assumed verticals. And Dirty Jobs challenged a lot of those. Challenged the idea of why certain jobs, hey, Clean jobs are seen as successful ones, and dirty jobs, well, not so much. Which is where Mike picks up the story in his talk. I started to look at passion. I started to look at teamwork and determination, and basically all those platitudes they call successories that hang with that schmaltzy art in boardrooms around the world right now. That stuff, it's suddenly all been turned on its head. Follow your passion. What could possibly be wrong with that? It's probably the worst advice I ever got. You know, that's all I heard growing up. I didn't know what to do with my life, but I was told if you follow your passion, it's going to work out. I can give you 30 examples right now. Bob Combs, the pig farmer in Las Vegas, who collects the uneaten scraps of food from the casinos and feeds them to his swine. Why? Because there's so much protein in the stuff we don't eat. His pigs grow at twice the normal speed, and he is one rich pig farmer, and he is good for the environment, and he spends his days doing this incredible service, and he smells like hell, but God bless him. He's making a great living. You ask him, did you follow your passion here? He'd he'd laugh at you. He didn't follow his passion. He stepped back and he watched where everybody was going, and he went the other way. You know, people with dirty jobs are happier than you think. As a group, they're the happiest people I know. And I don't want to start whistling, look for the union label and all that happy worker crap. I'm just telling you that these are balanced people who do unthinkable work. Roadkill picker-uppers whistle while they work. I swear to God, I did it with them. They've got this amazing sort of symmetry to their life. And I see it over and over and over again. So I started to wonder what would happen if we challenged some of these sacred cows. Which is what Mike Rowe would eventually devote his life to doing. How he came to see the world that way, how he came to redefine in his own mind, in the minds of his viewers, what makes someone successful, 
with help from bloodworms. That story in a moment here on the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and this is NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and our show today is all about that loaded word, success. What it means, what it doesn't, and why we're so obsessed with it. So when Mike Rose started the show Dirty Jobs, he started to realize that the way he thought about success was all wrong. The people that you've met, you know, the people with with these so-called dirty jobs, right? Like, what do you think that success means to them? To be successful means what? Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's very personal you know, to a lot of the guys I met. I remember a guy up in Maine. His name was Rob. He, he sold bloodworms for a living. So at low tide, he and I would walk out, and we'd start picking these things up out of the sand. And they were as long as your forearm. And they have teeth, by the way, these things. Bloodworms have four black teeth. But according to Rob, a bloodworm bite feels just like a bee sting. There goes a bloodworm right here. And um, yeah, it's very deceptive. He would sell them as bait all over yes. the world. See the head popping out? Yeah. That, that's the head, that's the head popping out. You don't want that to bite you. Anyway, Rob looked like the kind of guy, if you saw him on the street, you would step around him or maybe give him a buck and wish him well. And toward the end of the day, he showed me his house up on the hill, which he had paid for in cash. And we went up and had a beer, and I learned that he had another home, a summer home, that he also paid for in cash. And so what you don't see probably 40 or 50 of the people we profiled over the years were multimillionaires. Small business owners, entrepreneurs, whose success just makes no sense because it just doesn't measure up in the way we're used to evaluating it. You know, Les Swanson from Wisconsin, (laughs) I remember, he was a septic tank cleaner. I spent a day with him. You know what else I like, Les? It's uh, it's nice and warm today and humid. It's a good day. It enhances the... And one afternoon, we were up to our uh, chest in the most unspeakable filth there is in a pumping station, <laughs> knocking huge hunks of coagulated cholesterol off the wall. And I'd look at him at one point, and I'd say, Les, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, he said, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm, this is what I do. And I said, what would you do before this? He said, honestly? I said, yeah. He said, I was a, uh, I was a guidance counselor and a psychiatrist. Huh. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Why'd you leave? And without missing a beat, he said, I, I got tired of dealing with other people's crap. <laughs> and that's how so many of these people did it. They didn't start by going, what am I passionate about? What do I love? People on dirty jobs, they say, no, no, no. You don't follow your passion. You always bring it with you. But you never follow it. 
Well, I mean, a lot of people on this very episode have or will say a version of that. They'll say, you know, this is passion. This is what you're supposed to pursue to find success. Yeah, I know. Whatever. Look, it's great copy, and I don't mean to just dismiss it, but I think of all the people I know in my industry who are, you know, around my age who have still followed their passion, and they're they're struggling. They're going to struggle all their life. That's not really the question, though. The question is, are they happy? And if you're happy following your passion, great. But if you're unhappy and you're just doing it because of inertia, then somebody needs to give you a little slap. Now, Micro doesn't just think about this in the abstract. He thinks the way we've been conditioned to think about success is actually hurting our ability to function as a society, hurting our economy, because we don't dignify dirty jobs or the success that comes with them. So the thing to do is to talk about a PR campaign for work, manual labor, skilled labor, the stuff a lot of us probably grew up with, but we've kind of lost a little. Every single year, fewer electricians, fewer carpenters, fewer plumbers, fewer pipe fitters. The infrastructure jobs that everybody is talking about creating are those guys. So if I were running for anything, and I'm not, I would simply say that the jobs we hope to make and the jobs we hope to create aren't going to stick unless they're jobs that people want. And I know the point of this conference is to celebrate the things that are near and dear to us. But I also know that clean and dirty aren't opposites. They're two sides of the same coin, just like innovation and imitation, like risk and responsibility, and like my time that's gone. It's been great talking to you. And uh, get back to work, would you? Mike Rowe, he just started a foundation that gives scholarships to students who want to master a trade. It's called profoundlydisconnected.com. Check out his entire talk at ted.npr.org. How have we come to define success? Is it about achievement? Um, look, the word success, it's neutrally defined in the dictionary. Mm. It just means excellence in a given field. Huh. This is the writer Alain de Botton. He wrote a book called Status Anxiety. You know, if I said there's a, there's a really successful person you know, out there in the studio, you, you know, you'd imagine, well, that's somebody who's done well in the entertainment field or in business or in politics. Or, we all got this idea of what successful means. But of course, what it really means is just doing something well. And everybody who starts out in life wants to be a success. And Elan says that simple desire to be a success, it actually creates a lot of anxiety, especially on Sunday nights. Here's how he starts his TED Talk. For me, they, they normally happen, these career crises, often actually on a Sunday evening, just as the sun is starting to set and the gap between my hopes for myself and the reality of my life start to diverge so painfully that I normally end up uh, weeping into a pillow. I'm mentioning all this, I'm mentioning all this because I think this is not merely a personal problem. You may think I'm wrong in this, but I think that we live in an age when our lives are regularly punctuated by career crises, by moments when what we thought we knew about our lives, about our careers, comes into contact with a threatening sort of reality. One of the reasons why we might be suffering is that we are surrounded by snobs. What is a snob? A snob is anybody who takes a small part of you 
and uses that to come to a complete vision of who you are. That is uh, snobbery. And the dominant uh, kind of snobbery that exists nowadays is job snobbery. You encounter it uh, within minutes at a party when you get asked that famous, iconic question of the early 21st century, what do you do? Every time, you know, like I talk to people in, in Washington, D.C., where I live, they'll say, oh, I hate Washington because everybody always asks you, what do you do, right? But like that's, a, that's like a normal question. It's kind of a normal question, but it's a very modern question. You know, people weren't doing that 300 years ago. You, know, you used to be defined by where you came from and who your family was you know like so and so was the son of so and so they come from this little village which is down the river from the forest etc and nowadays our identities are entirely bound up with our work you can't really understand someone without understanding what their job is which is all well and good except that many of us are not in the jobs that we really want to be in some of us don't even know what the right job would be others know what the right job would be but we can't get it in other words, there is a, a real danger of a disconnect between what's on your business card and who you are deep inside. And it's not a disconnect that the world is ready to be patient with. So if you say to somebody, look, uh, you know, I'm an accountant, but my, my soul is to be a, a, a rock guitarist. Mm. People will go, well, you know, forget about the soul. And you get this in any social encounter. What do you do if the answer is the right answer? You become somebody's friend. And if the answer is the wrong answer, you're abandoned by the peanuts and left to fend for yourself. So there's cruelty because the dream of everybody is to be evaluated in a complex way as a human being. And the deepest core of every human being, there is a longing for respect, dignity, a sense of being understood, and that's in short supply. The thing is, is that all of this anxiety, all of this job snobbery, Alan says it comes from an inspired place. The idea that each of us can go out and achieve anything we want. Never before have expectations been so high about what human beings can achieve. Anyone can achieve anything. We've done away with the caste system. We are now in a system where anyone can rise to any position they please, and it's a beautiful idea. Along with that has come a spirit of equality. We're all basically equal. There are no strictly defined hierarchies. There's one really big problem with this, and that problem is envy. And it's linked to the spirit of equality. Let me explain. I think it would be very unusual for anyone here or anyone watching to be envious of the Queen of England. Uh, even though she's uh, much richer than any of you are, and she's got a very large house, the reason why we don't envy her is because she's too weird. Uh, she's simply too strange. We can't relate to her. She speaks in a funny way. She comes from a sort of odd place. So we can't relate to her. And when you can't relate to somebody, you don't envy them. The closer two people are in age, in background, in the process of identification, the more there's a danger of envy, which is incidentally why none of you should ever go to a school reunion, because there is no stronger reference point than people one was at school with. But the problem generally of modern society is that it turns the whole world into a school. Everybody's wearing jeans, everybody's the same, and yet they're not. Life used to be simpler. You just went down a certain path. There were three career options. Now it's one of a million. We're all the time aware of people who've used their brains in a certain way, and hooray, it all you know, went brilliantly right, and others who've crashed and failed miserably. So there's a frenetic atmosphere in modern society, particularly in the United States, because this is the land of opportunity. And you know, when I hear your politicians saying, you know, we want to build a United States where everyone, no matter where they come from, can get 
anywhere. I think two things. One, that's fantastic, fantastic, great. Two, it's got a nasty sting in the tail. Because what happens if in this land of opportunity, it doesn't go right for you? What, what happens? By definition, not everybody can win the race. The United States is a society that believes in fairness at the beginning of the race, but then once the starting pistol goes, it's winner takes all. It's very frenetic to live in such a society. That said, you know, the United States rewards its winners like no other country on earth. But in many ways, it punishes its losers. Now that word is an American word, loser, you know, pause. Um, in, in the Middle Ages in the United Kingdom, the word for somebody who was at the bottom of society was an unfortunate. Mm. Literally, somebody who, perhaps through no fault of their own, had failed because of the actions of fortune, the goddess of fortune, mm. unfortunate. Wasn't their fault. It wasn't their fault. Nowadays, in America, you're a winner or you are a loser. Now, what is a loser? A loser is somebody who has failed according to the rules of the game that they have signed up to. In other words, we have made in the United States a meritocratic society where success is deserved, but failure is also deserved. So this is this is like a little bit depressing, right? I mean, this is this all this pressure and 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 stuff. And I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, how do we how do we end it? Like, how do we change? How do we change this? Um, look, the first thing is to recognize it and to treat ourselves with compassion. We are, at one level, an extremely privileged society. And so there's nothing to complain about. But yes, there is. The psychological pressures are enormous. We should be able to recognize it. And I don't mean this trivially, make jokes about it. What I mean by that is show a compassionate, tolerant regard for the pressures that we live under. There's another source of solace and comfort for all this. When we think about failing in life, one of the reasons why we fear failing is not just a loss of income, a loss of status. What we fear is the judgment and ridicule of others. The number one organ of ridicule nowadays is the newspaper. It's full of people who've messed up their lives. They've slept with the wrong person, they've passed the wrong piece of legislation, whatever it is, they have failed and they are described as losers. Now, is there any alternative to this? I think the Western tradition shows us one glorious alternative, and that is tragedy. Tragic art was essentially an art form devoted to tracing how people fail, also according them a level of sympathy. I remember a few years ago, I was thinking about all this, and I went to see the Sunday Sport, a tabloid newspaper that I don't recommend you to start reading if you're not familiar with it already. And I went to talk to them, and I wanted to see how they would seize the bare bones of certain stories if they came in as a news item. So I told them about Othello. They'd not heard of it, but they were fascinated by it. And <laughs> I asked them to write the headline for the story of Othello. They came up with, love-crazed immigrant kills senator's daughter. Splashed across the headline. I gave them the, the plot line of uh, Madame Bovary. Again, in a book they were enchanted to discover. And they wrote, shopaholic adulteress swallows arsenic after credit fraud. Uh, <laughs> and then my favourite... And they really do have a kind of genius all of their own, these guys. My favourite, Sophocles is Oedipus the King. Sex with mum was blinding. Um, <laughs> it's... Anyway, but... In a way, if you like, at one end of the spectrum of sympathy, you've got the tabloid newspaper. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got tragedy and tragic art. And I suppose I'm arguing that we should learn a little bit about what's happening in tragic art. It would be insane to call Hamlet a loser. He is not a loser, though he has lost. Uh, and I think that is the message of tragedy to us and why it's so very, very important, I think.
it's really not possible to be successful at everything. No, we have to make a choice. All success involves choices. Succeeding in one area will probably mean neglecting other areas. Right now I'm being a bad father, but I'm being a good author, right? So I'm, you know, succeeding in the author space and failing in the father space. We've got one of the most ridiculous and paradoxical ideas at large in modern society is this idea of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can be a success at work and you can be a success at home with your family. Yeah. The bad news for listeners is that you can't. It's impossible. You have to make a choice. Can't do both. Um, and, you know, I've met many very successful CEOs and almost down to the last man or woman, they are not especially successful family people. Right. You know, there's a problem because, well, you know, as, as anyone who's ever tried to do anything well and wholeheartedly knows there's only so many hours in the day so we have to make some choices what do we want to be successful at and as do we want to be a successful parent do we want to be successful financially or in terms of reputation or in terms of changing the world or, you know there are many many criteria and i think we're not given enough of a guidance by our schools families the surrounding environment at the idea that there's going to have to be a choice around that word successful. So don't get me wrong, I'm not against success. It's a very important to strive to be successful. But before you do that, I think it's even more important to try and uh, tighten up the definition of what success might be for you, because it's unlikely to be something that will be, you know, a one size fits all. So what I want to argue for is not that we should give up on our ideas of success, but we should make sure that they are our own. We should focus in on our ideas and um, make sure that we own them, that we are truly the authors of our own ambitions. Because it's bad enough not getting what you want, but it's even worse to have an idea of what it is you want and find out at the end of the journey that it isn't, in fact, what you wanted all along. So by all means, success, yes, but let's accept the, the strangeness of some of our ideas. Let's probe away at our notions of success. Let's make sure our ideas of success are truly our own. Thank you very much. Alain de Botton. He wrote a book about all this. It's called Status Anxiety. His most recent book is called Artist Therapy, and you can hear both of his talks at TED.com. Success Don't come easy Success is hard to find Hey, thanks for listening to our show about success this week. If you missed any of it or you want to hear more, you want to find out more about who was on it, you can visit ted.npr.org and you can download this program through iTunes or through the NPR smartphone app. Our program was produced by Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour, with help this week from Chris Benderev, Portia Robinson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. Thanks to our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz. You've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>